What's up, folks? Welcome to Howard's Blend. This is your host, Howard Blend, and this is part three of the Diabetes series. Now, in this episode, we're going to be focusing on treatment for type 1 diabetes. So, the same thing of what I did in part two, uh, the potential causes and risk factors for diabetes, I split it up into two episodes. I'm going to do the same thing here for part three. And then the next episode, I guess act two, will focus on treatments for type two diabetes and gestational diabetes. And the reason why I'm doing that is just to try to add some consistency and persistence, you know, improving with each episode to the show. And this episode is brought to you by Distance to Empty, a new psychological experience from writer, director, actor, producer, Stefan Mohammadi. The full trailer became available on Kickstarter on March 15th. I will leave info in the show notes on where to find it on Kickstarter. And we're asking for donations. Whatever you are capable of donating would be great. In this episode of Howard's Blend. Now there's also continuous glucose monitoring where basically a device is inserted subcutaneous and it just it measures the blood sugar throughout the day. The amount of insulin or the insulin requirements changes throughout a person's lifetime and under various circumstances. Now, as I mentioned in the intro to the show, this episode, we're going to focus on the treatment for type 1 diabetes. So the bulk of the show is going to focus on insulin, types of insulin, insulin usage, etc. So let's get started. So with type 1 diabetes, the main treatment is insulin injections. So as mentioned in part 1, we talk about what is diabetes and then in part 2, act 1, where we go over the potential causes of type 1 diabetes. Basically, it's believed that the immune system attacks the cells of the pancreas that produce insulin. So over time, the number of cells that produce insulin go down. So the amount of insulin in the body goes down and then eventually nothing is left. And so there's no insulin to take the blood sugar out, or like I say, the glucose out of the blood. Thus, you get rising glucose levels and that causes damage to the body. Insulin is categorized depending on how fast it takes to have an effect and then the duration of those effects. So reading through the research, it looks like there's two, I'm going to put at the top almost like a tree, at the top of the tree, you know, the main categories, I should say, of insulin are basal and bolus. So basal is a long-acting insulin. You would use a long-acting insulin to keep your blood glucose levels in check between meals or when you're sleeping. So the other main 
category is bolus, as I said, is a short-acting insulin. So that's more of an insulin you would use before you eat a meal. So you're about to eat maybe a meal with some carbohydrates in it, and it helps to prevent your blood sugar from spiking going way up. So as we go down, I guess, to the next level, we go to rapid-acting insulin. Now, there's brand names um, that were listed in the documentation that I was reading. I'm going to skip over that because I don't, I don't think it's that important. Um, but so we go rapid-acting insulin, which the time it takes to uh, take effect is about 10 to 30 minutes, so pretty fast. Now, the peak of its effects is about 30 to 90 minutes, so half an hour to an hour and 30 minutes. And the total duration is somewhere in the range of three to five hours. So as I said earlier, that would be beneficial if you're about to eat a meal. Now, the next uh, category is short-acting insulin. Now, the onset for the effects to start is roughly 30 minutes to one hour. Now, the peak of its effects is about two to four hours, and then it has a longer duration of six to eight hours. Now, the next category is intermediate insulin. So, as you notice, the time is going up. So, as it makes sense, you know, you rapid acting, short acting, intermediate. So, the time it takes to take effect is going to be longer. That's 1.5 to 4 hours, and it peaks around 4 to 10 hours. And then the duration of the effects, it can last for 12 to 18 hours. We're getting close to a whole day. So as stated at the beginning, now you're getting into more insulin that you want to take to control your blood sugar throughout the day instead of just taking the insulin to affect blood sugar spikes right after a meal. Now then the final category here is long-acting insulin. Now long-acting insulin can be given one to two times a day. Um, now, some long-acting insulins, there's really not a peak, but um, the effects can last up to 24 hours, and some long-acting insulins have effects lasting 42 hours. So as I've mentioned several times already here on this uh, episode, you know, the rapid-acting insulin, the short-acting insulin, those are insulins that are used when you're about to eat a meal, and if um, if you eat a meal and then all of a sudden your blood sugar still goes too high, you can use the short-acting insulin, the rapid-acting insulin to help get that blood sugar back down. And then the longer-acting insulin, you know, the intermediate insulin, the long-acting insulin, that's what you use more between meals to help control blood sugar. And then overnight, you know, going back to episode one, and then I think I believe it was... Uh, Part two, I forgot which act it is, but we talk about glucagon. You know, when you sleep at night, then glucagon is released in order to turn that glycogen in the liver into glucose to help fuel the body for recovery, you know, breathing, respiration, heartbeat, etc. So it, the longer acting insulin helps to control the spike in insulin that can occur overnight. So now we're going to talk a little bit about dosing. How much insulin should one take? Now for an initial dose, it's kind of to get started. Uh, the patient's weight in kilograms is multiplied 
by 0.5 or 0.6. Now, as I stated, this is an initial dose. This is to get started to see, okay, how does this affect the patient's blood sugar levels? Now, there are some factors that affect the dosage of insulin required. So one is diet. Obviously, if you follow a shitty diet, then you're probably going to need more insulin because it's going to cause your blood sugar to spike. Whereas if you follow a, I guess, for lack of a better term, clean diet, um, you have lots of vegetables, fiber, fruit, nuts, you know, lean meats, uh, or if you don't eat meat, if you're uh, avoiding animal products, uh, you're probably not going to require as much insulin because now you're eating foods that take your body more time to digest, have more micronutrients, which can uh, positively affect blood sugar levels. Physical activity, obviously, if you just sit around all day on a couch, well, then you're probably going to require more insulin to take care of the sugar in your bloodstream. Whereas if you're physically active, now your body's utilizing blood sugar more effectively. Uh, something that we're going to talk about here later is adjustments to insulin can be based off continuous glucose monitoring. So, you know, kind of the, and we're going to talk more about this later, but how I measure my blood sugar is I just have the little finger prick. You, know, you go to Walmart and you can buy a, a little monitor for like nine bucks. Now, you do have to buy the test strips, you have to buy the Lancet, you have to buy the little, um, I may have gotten it wrong, the Lancet may be the little, uh, the little needle, but you got to buy that little device that you push the button and it kind of releases the little latch and then it pokes your finger. That's a, a manual way of testing blood sugar. Now, there's also continuous glucose monitoring where basically a device is inserted subcutaneous and it just it measures the blood sugar throughout the day. So you're getting a better picture like, okay, where's the blood sugar spiking? You know, is it after a meal or when I wake up or you know, so you get a fuller picture of what's going on. So the results from continuous glucose monitoring can also be used as a factor to change the amount or the dosage of insulin required. Now, the next part here is going to go a little bit into diet. It's not much, but we're just going to cover it briefly here. People with type 1 diabetes uh, should also be taught about diet, especially carbohydrate consumption. What carbohydrates affect your blood sugar the most, negatively make it spike. Obviously, if you're just going to down a whole thing of table sugar, that's not going to be good for your, your blood sugar levels, where if you're having carbohydrates in the form of like beans um, or like quinoa or sweet potatoes, that's not going to affect your blood sugar in a negative way nearly as much as table sugar would. Because again, we're going back to the idea of now you're consuming a whole food, not just the raw sugar. Sure, beans turn into glucose in the body. Sweet potatoes turn into glucose in the body. Quinoa turns into glucose in the body, but you're also consuming a ton of fiber and micronutrients, which that can help lower the level at which your blood sugar spikes. So diet is important uh, to teach to people with type 1 diabetes. Now, it's also mentioned in the, the resources that people with type 1 diabetes should also be taught to calculate the what's called the correction factor. A way to estimate that correction factor, it's like a formula, so it's 1800 divided by the total 
daily dose. You know, the total daily dose going back to the initial dosage uh, was the kilograms, somebody's weight in kilograms uh, multiplied by 0.5 or 0.6. So obviously, if it's been adjusted over time, that may be different than that formula, but you take 1800 and then divide it by whatever the amount of the total daily dose is. And what that does is it estimates how much the blood sugar will go down for every unit of insulin given. So again, kind of reading between the lines here, the way I look at it is that that's a good way to estimate it so you know, okay, well, if my blood sugar is X and then I know the correction factor is, you know, whatever, uh, if I take, you know, two units of insulin, let's say, then that should lower my blood sugar just to the right level. If I take three, it's going to lower it too much and then that's dangerous. Or if I take one, then blood sugar is still too high, still dangerous. So that's what I kind of read when I when I read on the uh, the correction factor. Now going back to insulin usage, the amount of insulin or the insulin requirements changes throughout a person's lifetime and under various circumstances. So if somebody is going through puberty, a teenager, if a woman is pregnant, um, if somebody's obese, they're going to require more insulin than somebody who's not going through puberty, a woman who isn't pregnant, and somebody who's not obese. Again, I'm going to keep repeating it. Even with type 1, type 2, you don't have to be obese to develop any one of those. There's plenty of people who are not obese, they look like in good shape, but yet they have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes. So it's not just the factor of, I'm not overweight, I don't have to worry about it. So, But if you're overweight or obese, you're going to require more insulin. If somebody's engaged in physical activity, is not going to require as much insulin as somebody who just sits around all day, who lives a, a sedentary lifestyle. I mean, physical activity, I believe I mentioned it before in this series, is a treatment for almost any disease. I can't think of any disease where exercise is not a treatment. Now, also, not as much insulin is required in what is called the honeymoon period, and that that has no reference to marriage, but the honeymoon period is for people with type 1 diabetes, it's the period of time not long after they've been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and the pancreas at that time is still able to produce enough insulin to keep their blood sugar under con- you know, relatively under control, but as time goes on, that's not going to happen anymore. So insulin's going to have to, I guess, exogenous insulin outside of the body is going to have to then do the work. Now, in terms of monitoring, um, I don't do this myself, you know, with the finger prick, but somebody who does have type 1 diabetes, it should be uh, at least monitored uh, pre-meals, two to three hours after a meal. So you want to check it before you have a meal, two to three hours after a meal to see what the level of blood sugar is after a meal. I believe it's pronounced postprandial. I'm horrible with pronunciation. I probably got that wrong. That means like after eating, what your blood sugar does before you go to sleep. And when um, you experience symptoms of hypoglycemia. So some symptoms of that are shakiness. If you get dizziness, headaches, you know, that when people say, oh, my blood sugar is low and I feel faint, 
that can be a sign of hypoglycemia. Your blood is too, blood sugar is too low. So now we're going to go on to what I discussed earlier, continuous glucose monitors, a CGM for short. So it's basically a monitor that somebody wears all day long. So it's continuously, obviously with the name, monitoring your blood sugar levels. So there's basically like a needle that's a sensor that goes into the subcutaneous, so under the skin, fat. And what it's doing is it's measuring interstitial fluid. Again, I'm horrible with pronunciation. If I'm wrong, that's the way it is. So a difference is what I use, the little finger prick, that's measuring the glucose in the blood. Whereas I just said the continuous glucose monitors measure the amount of glucose in the interstitial fluid. So the continuous glucose monitor is monitoring every few minutes the glucose in that interstitial fluid. You know, obviously the big difference is, you know, if you're having to prick your finger and check it, it's only measuring it at those times. What I said earlier, before a meal, two to three hours after a meal, before bed, um, when you think you have hypoglycemia, whereas the continuous glucose monitor, obviously you can check it any time of the day because it's continuously monitoring. Now, why does a continuous glucose monitor measure the glucose in the interstitial fluid? Why not the blood? One difference is the blood, it transfers glucose to your whole entire body. Now, interstitial fluid, that transfers the glucose to the actual cells. And remember, you have insulin that helps the glucose get put into the cells so it's not circulating through the blood. A big bonus to the continuous glucose monitor is, as I said, you're getting a full picture. So when I prick my finger, anybody pricks their finger, and you measure your blood sugar, well, you know, it may be, uh, it may be low, but then you don't know what's going to happen in two hours, where your blood sugar levels are going to be in two hours, unless you prick your finger again and check it. Whereas the continuous glucose monitor now you get to see, as I said, the big picture. You can see, okay, at six o'clock it was it was normal, and then all of a sudden at eight it dropped here, and then at ten it went back up again. You're seeing the big picture. That's the best way I can put it. And since you have the big picture, then you can see what affects blood sugar the most. I mean, if you wake up and have oatmeal with a banana, and then all of a sudden your blood sugar spikes up. But then the next day you have oatmeal with blueberries and then it only goes up halfway. Well, then you know, okay, the banana is causing it to really spike. Maybe cutting it back to a half a banana or if you're okay with blueberries, just eating blueberries. That's just an example. So it kind of gives you a picture of like, okay, this is what's affecting my blood sugar. I did this. This is how my blood sugar responded. So you know how to tailor your lifestyle to positively affect your blood sugar the most, and you know what to avoid. Going into more of the technology of continuous glucose monitors, there are some that can alarm the person if the blood sugar gets too high. Again, it's not like pricking your finger and then you read your blood sugar at that time. It's always with you. It continues throughout the day. So you may be walking down the street and all of a sudden the alarm goes off. Your blood sugar is too high. There's also alarms if there's a change in it. Again, like after you eat or something and you, know, you eat that uh, example of the oatmeal and the banana and then all of a sudden that banana causes your blood sugar to spike, it'll alarm the person like your blood sugar just spiked. Now, those thresholds spike by how much, you know, drop by how much, 
that's customizable that can be set by the patient, you know, obviously in conjunction with advice with the doctor. Continuous glucose monitors can also communicate with insulin pumps, otherwise known as an artificial pancreas. So instead of getting insulin injections, there's just a pump that's always on the person that the continuous glucose monitor senses, okay, blood sugar is getting too high, then automatically the artificial pancreas insulin pump puts insulin into the system to help control that blood sugar level. And continuous glucose monitors by Bluetooth, you can pair it with a phone. So now you have readings that are in your phone. That's great to provide to healthcare providers like, hey, this is my readings throughout the day. And I'm sure a doctor will also advise to keep like a diary of of food intake. So then, okay, what spiked here? This is what you're eating. Now, another continuous glucose monitor I read about in the documentation, it's not as expensive and it's only worn for about 10 days at a time. I guess colloquially, it's called like a a flash continuous glucose monitor. So it reads the sugar levels about every 15 minutes and there's no alarm feature. So if your blood sugar spikes, it goes down, it's not going to let you know. But there's um, a reader that the person can have and basically they can scan it over wherever the sensor is placed, you know, into the subcutaneous fat. And then it gives like a readout, okay, well, this is how much the uh, the blood sugar is at this time whenever you scan over it. So in this next section, we're going to cover basic health care for somebody with type 1 diabetes. So as explained in episode 1, diabetes can affect the eye, can cause what's called diabetic retinopathy. So you obviously want to get eye exams. Make sure that your eyes are good. Make sure hopefully there's no damage, but if there is, you know, try to keep that to a minimum. As I said, the diabetic retinopathy, uh, what that is, is basically damage to the blood vessels of the retina. As I said in episode one, or I guess in part one, I should say, the sugar in the bloodstream too much, it damages blood vessels. So that includes blood vessels in your eye. So it it can eventually lead to blindness. Uh, Somebody with type 1 diabetes also wants to see a podiatrist take care of their feet. So because of the increased amount of glucose in the bloodstream, sores, ulcers, whatever you want to call it, they don't heal as well. So if they're not healing, they can become infected and eventually you can have toes cut off or feet, legs amputated from it. So you want to make sure that somebody with type 1 diabetes is educated on proper foot care, you know, how to take care of your feet. If you do get a cut, try to keep it disinfected so it can have a chance to heal without becoming infected. Uh, what to do if there's an injury to the feet, excuse me, injury to the foot, or I guess feet, both of them. So other specialists that somebody with type 1 diabetes could benefit from seeing are psychologists. This is a big impact. It's fearful. I can imagine if you've been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the beginning, you know, what is it, the, the stages of grief, whatever, you, you go through like denial, like what? This can't be happening. But it's scary. I can imagine it's very scary. And so you might benefit from seeing a psychologist to help get through that time because it's it's a lifestyle change, but it, it can be done. Uh, nephrologists, again, you know, it's, if it's damaging blood vessels, it can also do a lot of damage to the kidneys. So you want to make sure you're seeing a nephrologist. Cardiologist, the most important arteries are in your heart. So if those get messed up or they get damaged, you can have heart problems. 
mean, it's obvious that's no bueno. Now, in this next part, I'm going to go over some new potential treatments that look promising. Reading through it, it sounded really, really cool. So one here is islet cell transplantation. So in the pancreas, this kind of goes back to, we talked about it in part one, but in the pancreas, in the pancreas, pardon me, islets, they're almost like small, like islands. Uh, imagine like little islands in the ocean, but they're small islands, I guess, of cells that produce the hormones. Examples are glucagon, insulin, discuss those in the episode one. So it's the little, like little islands of cell producing areas on the pancreas. So the idea is, is that you can actually transplant those islet cells that have been destroyed by the immune system. Now, at this moment, patients who get islet cell transplantation, they require drugs to help suppress their immune system. Obviously, the immune system originally with type 1 diabetes, it saw the beta cells as foreign invaders. But when you get a transplant, now the immune system's still going to look at that as a foreign invader. So you take drugs to help lower your immune system's response to that. So you can try to prolong the benefits of the islet cell transplantation. Now, the cool thing about this, uh, I guess, upcoming didn't say you know how much research was done in, in the uh, in the documentation, but the promising new islet cell transplantation is that the islets are encapsulated, and it didn't explain what they're encapsulated with or anything, but it basically means that your immune system would not be able to recognize the islet cells. And so that means there's no need for immune suppressing treatment and the, the islet cell transplantation would last longer. And I'm going to bring it up now, especially now with, with the coronavirus, you know, somebody taking immune suppressing drug, they're at a higher risk of really developing horrible symptoms and at a greater risk of, of dying, mortality from coronavirus. So if, if this therapy that actually holds holds up and it actually works, and I guess it's available for people with type 1 diabetes to, to use, then they won't need those immune suppressing drugs because already type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, etc. is a factor for getting a, a more harsh symptoms from coronavirus. So now that you don't have to take those drugs, well, now you may not have type 1 diabetes anymore if it works and you don't need the immune suppressing drugs. So now you're at a better shot to get past coronavirus. And pretty much that's all the information I had to cover treatments for type 1 diabetes. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Howard's Blend. If you enjoyed the show and you're finding value in it, then please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe. And conversely, if you're not finding value in the show and you're not enjoying it, then don't leave a review or leave a bad review. Give a low rating and don't subscribe. If Apple Podcasts isn't your thing, the show is also available on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Now, one thing I want to mention that I didn't at the beginning of the show is that by no means is the treatments that I went over in this episode meant to be substituted for advice from your doctor. 
always get advice from your doctor. Now, if you want to take some of the information I mentioned and you want to ask the doctor about it, by all means, go ahead. Always ask your doctor questions. Be inquisitive. Be proactive in your treatment. But don't take what I say here as the sole means of treatment. Always ask a professional. Now, if you have any questions that you want to ask, please feel free. I'm always happy to help. My email address is where, as well as where you can find me on social media are in the notes of the show. Also, I want to mention that on April 3rd, I released a short video talking about a quote-unquote nutrient drink that I devised myself. When I say devised, it's basically trial and error in the kitchen, which I'll be doing another video about, kind of going over how I did that. But I'm looking at starting that as a business. I've wanted to start a supplement company for a long time. And going back into the the self-help episodes, kind of sat on my ass and did nothing. And now I'm like, okay, the best time to start is now. Let's take the bull by the horns and see what this can become. So go back to April 3rd, watch that video, and then look forward to future videos where I kind of explain more and kind of go through the process. I want to document it as we go on. Well, folks, that's it. Thanks again for listening and put down that sugar.